0: Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And thank you for joining us this week. Today, we get to talk about one of my very favorite subjects, dogs. I am so excited. There's nothing I want to talk about more than dogs. And our guest is Kara Achterberg. She is the author of most recently, 100 Dogs and Counting. One Woman, 10,000 Miles, and a Journey into the Heart of Shelters and Rescues. You know, things have really improved regarding homeless dogs since years ago. I mean, even since we started this podcast, but they haven't improved nearly enough. So the things that Kara writes about and the things that she and and Marianne will talk about today are, are sometimes very sad, let's be real, but there is also hope and there are some successes and there are a whole lot of good people working on getting dogs home.
1: Yeah, how often do we get to talk about good people? Of course, there are a few villains uh, in the piece as well. On this week's Flock bonus segment, I'll be continuing my conversation with Kara. And I just want to mention that if you have read her books or are going to read her books, you're going to realize that she is not vegan. As is true of many people, uh, working in Companion Animal Rescue. However, if you listen to the bonus content, you will realize that she is well on her way. She's shifted, shifted significantly. And I love to hear that. It's always so heartening. And as always, if you're a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up. You can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate.
0: Oh, and by the way, if you're a member of the flock, you can also join us for our flock first Friday, zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 PM Eastern or 8 PM Greenwich Mean Time, where we focus on how to be better activists, how to be better at taking care of ourselves, how to be better at taking care of one another and guiding us along those discussions. We have some discussions with very inspiring guests, including former podcast guests, uh, so definitely check that out. We have Thomas Goodman coming up for the next one, I believe. So if you are a member of the flock, check out the flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at our Oh, and if you're a member of the flock, be sure to set up a one-on-one to meet with me, we can talk about your activism or your veganism or just life in general. You can learn how to get on the schedule by emailing Jen at Jen at our henhouse.org. So before we begin, I just kind of want to give everyone a heads up that it's currently the end of September somehow. And in October, we have some very special programming. We have the Encompass audiobook series for the book that I just edited called Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation. So October is going to look like this. Every Saturday, you're gonna get your regular Our Henhouse episode. Every Tuesday, if you're a flock member, you're gonna get your bonus content. Once a month in October, you're going to get the Animal Law podcast on a Wednesday. And every Thursday, you're going to get the uh, one of the four episodes that make up the audiobook for anti-racism and animal advocacy. We'll also be soon getting into our end-of-year fundraising, where we raise... of our annual funds for the year. So if you believe in independent media and you like our henhouse, then we hope that you'll become a flock member or a donor. If you're interested and able to donate more, email me at jasmine at our henhouse.org. There's no E on Jasmine. Speaking of donations, we were so lucky to recently be the beneficiary of one of my favorite companies, Brewing Good. I use Brewing Good coffee every day and it is my favorite part of the day. (laughs) And it's the part of the day that sets me up for success and one of the reasons i love this coffee bean subscription is because they benefit animal rights groups and recently our hen house was a beneficiary we just got the the check so i just wanted to say thank you to the kind folks at brewing good for keeping me happy and everyone in my life happy and for taking care of animals and for your recent very kind donation
1: that's really great. I, I'm I'm very touched by that. So yeah, thank you. Thank you, Brewing Good for me too. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, Jasmine, it sounds like people need to quit their jobs in order to stay we're up with our this month. <laughs>
0: it's a lot. No, in October, it's a lot. I mean, you don't have to listen to it all in October, but you know, I'm pretty excited about it. It's definitely more programming than we've ever done in a single month, and it's largely thanks to Jen Riley, who's our director of operations, who really was the lead uh, producer on the forthcoming audiobook series. So, thank you to Jen, and thank you to everyone in advance for listening. So. We're both settled sort of somewhat in uh, Rochester. Oh, I am not even remotely settled. Like when you
1: said that thing about, I can't believe it's the end of September. I actually feel in some ways that September has lasted for like a year because I can't even remember where I used to live. But I still... complete i'm so upside down and there I, I can't find anything still and why do i own so much crap i don't know somebody write to me and answer me that why do i own all this crap and, and why don't i just throw it out like what's stopping me what's wrong with me people
0: it's funny because you're on i'm watching you on video we record these on video and i see you like looking around your room in despair right now <laughs> but it's, it's just uh, horrifying well i so w- we did make a friend who, you know, it's very difficult to make friends in today's day and age. And we made a friend in our, our real estate agent has become a good friend of ours. That's like be, pretty much the only way you can make friends right now. is like if you're moving and you become friends with your real estate agent. So his name is Joe and he's like kind of like all of our little brother. And he's just so funny to talk to about veganism. So he was over the other day because we had like a little birthday dinner for him. We started talking He's about veganism. Like this guy
1: in the world too. He has helped me so much. Yeah. In spite of the fact that I'm in despair, yeah, like I would be in worse despair. I just don't want us to make it sound like this is a one way street.
0: No, not at all. He's a remarkable person. Like he, he like. He, like, overrode friend territory and, like, went right into chosen family territory. But part of that is, like, joshing one another and, like, kind of just being, you know, being really straightforward. And we're there already. We're there. And anyway, so we were chatting about what to talk about today. And you mentioned, well, what about that conversation we had with Joe? And it's true. So we were talking to him about veganism. We're all sitting around the table. And then suddenly something comes up about uh, other companies that we boycott or for other reasons that kind of have nothing related.
1: And actually, even prior to that conversation, because he was helping me buy stuff I needed for the house, I mentioned that I I don't go to Home Depot because the guy who owns it supports Trump. And then he was like, all right, all right, we'll go to Lowe's. Right or like yeah, I don't even know who owns Lowe's. it's probably just as bad, and he did make it's that. Not, point.
0: It's not. It's not well. And then also <laughs> there's like Dyson supported Brexit, so you know yeah, like all I, of these I things. Didn't even
1: know about that one? I, all of like, these things started like, to come up. And, yeah, and and there's a certain level of expertise in uh, amongst us all, but with one person uh, in particular who knows everything bad that every company has ever done, and you know sometimes it gets a little overwhelming
0: you're talking about more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to be clear that you're not talking about me. Okay, yeah. My my yeah, my 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 partner more is very good at knowing what to boycott and why. And so um Joe was basically like God, this is all so hard. Your life is so hard, and I was like, "Whoa!" And it was like, "Let's let's backpedal for a minute because these, you know, these aren't really vegan related exactly, except for we do like to have a consciousness about what we're consuming. But please don't like lump these issues in with veganism. So uh, it was like kind of a funny moment. I mean, they are different than veganism
1: in a lot of ways. But they're not that different. I mean, a lot of people consider veganism a boycott. I consider it a little bit more than a... Well, a lot more than a boycott because it's not like if animal use industry has changed their policies, I would go back to, you know, going there. Whereas if a a company is doing something bad and I like their products, I'll I'll go back to buying them if they stop doing the bad thing. But so veganism is different. It's just, it's not that different. And I think it's something to pay attention to. And I'm not exactly sure what to do about it. Like you want to live up to your to your ideals. But if you start overwhelming people with how great your ideals are, they're just going to shut down.
0: Yeah. Well, well, let's keep this conversation going, because I find it all kind of fascinating. Like in a way, it is an extension of uh, our veganism, like you said. But I also don't want to come across that way to new people in our life.
1: Yeah. And I had a conversation with him the other day and it was totally like he he just said that thing oh yeah i like he's he's always saying like he was really sympathetic with veganism and said, but I really like cheese. There's no good vegan cheese. And I, I just blew up, (laughs) not exactly at him, but at the, like, I am so fucking sick. You know, I mean, as, as everybody out there knows, like all you ever hear about is cheese, (laughs) like as if it's the only food in the world. And as if there's no good vegan cheese, I had set us up for being even worse than, uh, than you realized with that conversation because I did get a, a little profane within it.
0: Oh, God, people. Yeah, but then, but then. What you, about cheese? Right. But then you actually got him a gift certificate to Riverdale Cheese. So you were doing advocacy. I'm just worried that like new people are going to be listening to this and are going to be like, Wait, that's how you advocate? No, no. But we're allowed to have a moment every now and then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sometimes I
1: I don't think it's so bad to let anger show through sometimes. I, I think it's fine. I think we should all be as honest as possible. I mean, you know, we shouldn't like actually cause physical harm to anybody. But other than that, like whatever strikes you is the way to get through. And I think sometimes when you're a, When you're a woman, like sometimes you know, and people are used to being really nice and really polite. Sometimes letting a little of the anger show is not such a bad thing. Not that I do this strategically; I don't do anything strategically. It just, uh, it all just happens. But honest to God, cheese! Do not start with me about cheese. Like if there's one thing (laughs) vegans are sick of hearing about, it's cheese. Especially since now we have such great cheese. Of course, now the poor guy has to order cheese online from a vegan store but you know he'll have oh
0: you know it is funny though like so many things are from the framework of an oppressive mindset like when people say i could be vegan but i could never give up cheese it's like such a human-centered argument and like we not only have we conquered cheese but aside from that like it's not kind of about you you know it's about like it's about the animals i i've been very frustrated by that lately about how people seem to have their ceiling of their ethics occasionally be How they can get around it, you know, when. Yeah, I
1: don't, because I don't think that that's true when people say that, because none of those people, and you're always pointing this out, none of those people actually give up all other animal products other than cheese. It's just like they think that that legitimates them not being vegan. And it does with a lot, you know, a lot of other people, and they somehow don't realize it doesn't with us, but it's just an excuse for not being vegan at all. Well, you know, cheese.
0: Right. I agree with that. Uh, and I appreciate this this gab fest about it. It is validating on a very deep level, and hopefully we'll break through that glass ceiling. But let's get to the interview, because our guest today, Kara Achterberg, is doing such incredible things, and she's an author and a shelter dog advocate. She is the co-founder of Who Will Let the Dogs Out, a nonprofit initiative to raise awareness and resources for homeless dogs and the heroes who fight for them. Her latest book, A Hundred Dogs and Counting, One Woman, 10,000 Miles and a Journey into the Hearts of Shelters and Rescues, recounts her fostering experiences and her quest to discover why so many dogs are homeless and what we can do about it. Her previous book, Another Good Dog, recounts her family's experience fostering now over 200 animals. That's
1: not 200 animals all at once. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to make that
0: clear. She's not a (laughs) order. Good to mention. Carol lives in Woodstock, Virginia, with her husband, three rescue dogs, and hopefully soon a foster cat. She will be joining Marianne right after this. Hi, friends. Jasmine here with some news and some gratitude for you. I hope you've been enjoying the Our Hen House podcast lately. And for those of you in the flock, I hope you've been enjoying your added weekly bonus material and other flock perks. In the spirit of sharing things we're learning, I wanted to let you know about my new newsletter. It's called Jasmine's Jargon, and it's an upfront look at the many moving parts of my life as they relate to activism, veganism, writing, writing time management, and how I do my best to stay calm or to try to stay calm. Each newsletter offers ideas, resources, and tools to help anyone who's interested in getting a bit more organized and focused do just that. I also, of course, cover topics relating to our hen house quite often, including what I'm learning from guests and cue the man behind the curtain, what tools we're using, everything from editing to communication to keep our nonprofit thriving and our podcast thought-provoking and relevant. Since I also wear a few other hats in the vegan world and beyond, I also include the down-low about which projects inspire, motivate, and challenge my efforts to change the world for animals. If you'd like to join, and I hope you would like to join, you can sign up for free at jasminesinger.substack.com. And there's no E on Jasmine. So it's J-A-S-M-I-N-S-I-N-G-E-R.substack.com. Thank you so much for being here on this journey with me and for listening to the Our Hen House podcast and the Animal Law podcast. We couldn't do what we do without you, our community. And for that, we are so beyond grateful. Welcome to our hen house, Kara.
1: Hey, it's great to be here. It's great to have you. You know, I feel like we don't talk about dogs enough, and we're going to really be talking about dogs today. And I'm not exactly sure where to begin, but maybe to give folks a framework, perhaps you can tell us what Operation Pause
2: for Homes is, because that was one of your starting points, I think. And how it works and how you got involved with them. So Operation Pause for Homes, which is a mouthful, so we usually call it OPH. OPH is a all breed and dog and now cat rescue. And they're based in Virginia, Alexandria, Virginia, but also part of Southern PA, all of Maryland, and DC. So they've been growing like crazy. It's a foster based rescue. They pull from primarily um kill shelters all over the South, and they do pull a few international dogs. And it's all done through mostly through volunteer efforts, and they save about a 1,000 to 1,500 dogs a year. And I'm not sure the cat number because that's a new thing. So yeah, and I got involved with them because I fostered. The cat problem is much bigger. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Actually, one of the things I was going to mention, we're
1: going to be talking about dogs, but one of the things I was going to mention is the fact that we're not talking about cats is not because we don't care about cats. It's because uh, how could, like like that's a whole other problem and a nightmare. But uh, let's talk about dogs because because there are nightmares here that I think some people maybe are not as aware of uh, and people thought maybe were more fixed than they are. And that's a lot of what you talk about in your latest book, 100 Dogs and Counting. And this work is heroic. The fostering his work and the work of um, OPH is heroic. And But you kind of gradually came to the realization that there's just never going to be enough money, space, foster homes, everything, if you couldn't cut off the flow, that they just kept coming, that these stories that things were getting better really in some places just aren't true. So you set out to educate yourself about where these dogs were coming from.
2: And it sounds like even as much as you knew about this situation, you were pretty shocked. I was absolutely shocked. I mean, just stunned. I mean, in in a moment, I could put myself back in that first shelter and just the smell and the crowd and desperation but hope this the people who work in these shelters are such heroes and they're you know they do it because they they believe they can fix it and and after seeing all that i see i've seen now i've been to um, about 50 shelters and rescues and dog pounds and i also believe it's it's very fixable and it's a frustration that it's not been fixed yet but the situation is much much worse and and thanks to the pandemic even you know we saw all those dogs leaving all those empty shelters but that was wonderful but in the end now we are worse off than we were prior to the pandemic because of the nearly year of no spay and neuter to set us very far back and the desperation of you know when people are struggling their animals struggle more and the place
1: you did your research is the same place that OPH pulls dogs from and that's mostly the rural south and i know you focused on the rural south i'm just kind of wondering i know things may be better elsewhere in, there are some places where really a lot of progress has been made, but dogs are still
2: being killed in shelters almost everywhere, aren't they? Yes, but mostly in the South. I mean, it, mostly in the rural South and rural parts of this country, not just, you know, like way upstate um, Pennsylvania, I've heard of some of this. Um, and I was speaking with a rescue in North Dakota and and hearing about, the, you know, the desperation up there. So it's everywhere. It's mostly in rural pockets and very, very urban depressed areas.
1: Yeah, I mean I experienced that some of that when I first started getting uh interested in animals. I did but that was a long time ago and I sort of moved on to other issues and other animal issues and haven't stayed as on top of the dog issues as I wanted to and I was shocked when I read your book and found out it was still as bad as it is at least in some place and and how do you think it is that even you and even I, though, I, I won't say I'm the most well-informed person in the world, but you were in this world and you had been rescuing dogs and had even written a book about rescue and foster. You, How do you think it is that you remained uninformed about the true conditions until you got there yourself? Why is How is this
2: kept such a secret? You know, I think it's because we've come so far. I mean, really huge, huge strides in the last 20 years to the number of dogs that are dying in shelters. It used to be astronomical. And now, We've made so much progress. A lot of us, myself included, we sort of felt like, okay, we took care of that. You know, it's not like when I was a kid and there was a dog pound and a dog catcher, and you know that we felt. I felt like, you know, the only dogs needing rescue were, you know, just not great numbers. And then going down there and seeing the desperation in um, some of these places, it was it was a shock. And I keep saying over and over again, it's not that people don't care. It's that they don't know. Because when I go places and I talk about it and I see, you know, jaws drops and eyes get big when I tell stories of some of these shelters, they just shocked. They didn't know, just like I didn't know. And so that's kind of been a mission of mine is to tell people what is still going on in our shelters and rescues. And yes, dog pounds, there are literally dog pounds all over the South. I'm going to one on Wednesday in West Virginia. So they're everywhere.
1: Yeah. And a lot of them, according to your book, they don't even attempt to do adoptions. It's not even part of what they do. They at best ship dogs to other places where hopefully they can be saved or warehouse them for a while. And of course, kill them in fairly large numbers. This is a painful picture, but can you can you just give us a glimpse into these places? And I know they vary. Some places have really hardworking people who are trying. Some places seem not to have that. But can you just give us a glimpse into what this is like? Because I, I honestly had no idea it was this bad.
2: Sure. And it and does, does run the gamut. And there are some wonderful, wonderful shelters in even the most desperate places that are, and I can give you examples of that too. But one of my dogs that I adopted, we found her in a dog pound in Tennessee, in Western Tennessee. And I went there with a rescue advocate or director of a rescue. And she, I was just curious. She had kept mentioning that there were dog pounds and I had never seen a dog pound. I'd been to a lot of shelters at that point, but not a quote unquote dog pound. So we, we drove there and it was up an unmarked road, dirt road, gravel road. And the only sign getting in said warning firing range. You know, So we Drove up this gravel road, and we came to a fenced-in building. The building was like a squatty cement block building with dog runs on the outside. There were 10 of them. Everything was very rusty and a lot of broken corners and, you know, worn out just because it's out in the elements all the time. No, no real heat. There was one kind of space heater hanging from the ceiling in the center of the, of the building. That was it. Obviously, no air conditioning, no fans, And there were dogs there and they had a five-gallon bucket of water and a bowl of whatever was left of food. And the dog catchers, they had two dog catchers. And I did look up what the one for the county and one for the quote-unquote city, although I I didn't feel like there was a city anywhere nearby. And they were both paid $1,000 a month. They have no qualifications are required, no degrees. They're not animal control officers. And they just went and picked up, you know, stray dogs or dogs that have been complained about or, you know, dogs when some somebody is arrested. And they put these dogs in the dog pound and they give them their five-gallon bucket of water and their bowl of food and they leave them there. They leave them there for the legal stray hold, which I believe in that county is five days. And then they come back at whenever they want to. To clean or not clean, to feed or not feed, um, usually just whenever they have to drop off another dog. And eventually they take them in town to the local vet's office where they can be euthanized for $25 unless their owner were to come and claim them, which I guess is a rarity. And then Trisha also said to me there were worse pounds because I was like, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And she said, no, there are worse pounds. I, I know one where they just shoot the dogs because it's cheaper. The fact that that is going on in this day and age, that really really shocked me. And I would say that's one of not the worst, but one of the worst shelters that I've seen. And those dogs are not vaccinated. They're not given flea and tick meds. They are not no medical attention is sought for them and And the dog that I eventually brought home was just laying there in her own manure because nobody had come to clean and obviously a quite long time when we got there. so it, it's pretty horrific and um, I don't, I don't know. To me, I just I just can't believe that could be going on, and, except I've seen it now with my own eyes too many times. It, it, it shocked me as well. And you really do paint a picture. And I don't want
1: people to think that that's all that's in your book is these horrible stories. It's also very heartwarming stories, but there's a lot of really bad stuff going on out there. And even in the better ones, even in the ones that really have people who are trying. One of, the, uh, one of the issues that really broke my heart because... Recently, my very, very beloved pit bull died and and I love pit bulls. And a lot of the problem in getting dogs out, not not discussing the problem of how this is happening, but of getting dogs out is that even the rescues don't really like to bring up the pit bulls because they're so hard to save. And probably some of the dogs who are already in the more established shelters in the areas where uh, dogs are being shipped to who are not getting adopted are pit bulls. So how much of the problem do you
2: think, is the fact that people are so ignorant about pit bulls? Well, the pit bulls are definitely a big piece of the problem just because of their sheer numbers. I mean, they're a popular breed and uh, everyone loves them. And, you know, we all have this idea that they're all coming from dog fighting rings. And that's not generally the case. I mean, the ones that I've met in the shelters. So a lot of times they were just backyard breeders, people who thought, oh, I'm going to breed these dogs and, and make a few bucks. And and some of the places that I've gone, I did spend a day with an organization in Memphis called All Fours Rescue League. And their mission is to, to go out to the dogs that are on chains in Memphis. It's legal to leave your dog outside on a chain 24-7. Uh, so they would go out and they would give them dog houses and they would offer medical attention and it did remarkable work. But it gave me a glimpse as to talking to some of these people about their pit bulls. And, and many of them just won't spay or neuter their dogs. They had, you know, they had the typical, I don't want to do that to him if they're a guy. And then some of them that were say, oh, that's what they were meant to do. Um, and there's just an ignorance about, about that. Uh, one guy told me he said his, his he said that his dog would become more aggressive if he was, if he was neutered. And I thought, no, I think that's, I think you have that reversed, but you're know, seeing some of that. So the pit bulls are a little bit, you know, and that is hard. A lot of rescues won't won't take them. They they can be hard to place. And, you know, they're not small dogs. Generally, they're pretty big dogs. So they require a person who's got a little bit of knowledge and physical ability to take care, of, take care of those dogs. So definitely that's a piece of it. And the other real big piece of it I see in the South is the heartworm positive status. Most of these dogs are kept outside and in areas that are, you know, very mosquito-laden and heartworm is transmitted by mosquito. So, if a dog doesn't have heartworm when it arrives at a shelter, if it sits there long enough, it eventually will. Just because you know they're in close proximity to heartworm positive dogs, and there are a lot of mosquitoes, and they live outside. So, that is really hard too, because it's expensive to treat heartworm. Many rescues won't pull the heartworm positive dogs, and you know, so they just start to—I don't want to say pile up—but they do. They get they can be warehouses, and and that's a that's a question I really have a hard time answering like is it better to keep this dog living in these kind of conditions but alive because there are places where i meet dogs that have been in that shelter 6 months a year even longer and i don't i don't know the answer to that question as which is better for them
1: yeah i don't either and i think there are so many questions that it's hard to know the answer to when it comes to these issues but there are a lot of people also who feel they know all the answers but but we won't get into that Let's go back to spay and neuter because that's usually, you know, touted everywhere as being the best solution to cutting off the flow. And obviously it's hugely important. And yet, you know, it's still, we still have resistance to it. And you talk about, you have hope that the message of spay and neuter
2: can gain traction. What do you think is needed to make that happen? Well, the biggest obstacle to spay and neuter in much of the South is access, cost and access. There are so few vets in the area in a lot of these areas, the one area that I've visited a lot in western Tennessee, there's like, there is one vet for about a hundred mile radius who who is willing to uh, spay and neuter at a, at a reasonable cost. And I understand why there aren't that many vets, because you're it's an area where people aren't going to take their dogs to the vet for much, <laughs> you know, maybe a rabies shot, maybe. Um, they don't take them to a vet for much. They don't, they can't afford very much. So what is the incentive for a vet? to set up practice in those areas when you know most of the work they're going to get in in some parts of it is was rescues coming to them who want a discount you know who need a discount rate and so access is tough so when you have uh, you know you have an area where you want to get these dogs spayed or neutered but the person's going to have to travel say 30 miles to get to a veterinarian who's going to want $500 or whatever to spay their dog or even $100 at that point in many of those areas to spay their dog and you don't even own a car you know, there's just, it's it's all of it. It's access, it's cost, it's availability, it's it's all of that and there's so little of it. So that's a huge problem. And there are places like Nashville Humane Association has a mobile clinic and they do take it out, but they can't be everywhere. So access is a big, big problem. So if we had easier access, I think that would help a lot because, you know, maybe, maybe a person is inclined to get their dog spayed or neutered, but they're embarrassed they can't afford it. Or that they don't have any way to get there, or they just don't even know how to go about it. They're just going to probably then just be, you know, cocky and say, oh, "I don't, I don't want to get my dog fixed because that's going to change him." You know, so there's a lot. You know, we do need to change perceptions, but we can't change perceptions unless we have access, unless we make it easier for people to get their animals spayed and neutered.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I tend to think of it as one or the other, but these things overlap on each other. And another thing that overlaps. And it must be so hard to separate this, but some people, obviously, some people make you very angry and the way you talk about them in the way that they don't value their dogs, just turning in their dogs because they're going away for the weekend. But that's not everybody. Some people can't afford to keep their dog or whatever. But there is this real need, like a kind of overall need to change people's attitudes to start thinking of dogs as more valuable. And how do you do that? Like, what are, what are, you've given so much thought to this. What are your thoughts on it?
2: I think it's like everything. It's example. It's 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 the trend. There's an organization in Baltimore called Show Your Softer Side. I think that's what it's called, and um, they get pro football players to pose with dogs. And they were they started it because there was some real terrible cruelty things happening in in Baltimore City. Kids, I don't even want to tell you the things they were doing to these poor animals. And so they started this organization. This remarkable woman started this organization to. try to to promote, you know, to show these big, bulky, tough guys cuddling a a little pit bull or, you know, that was, it was, it's a really, that's a really powerful message. And I know one of the Tennessee Titans is posed in some of those. And so, you know, that's a, that's one way, you know, to get, to get the message out. But uh, it is a lot of example. I think showing that we value these animals and people are sort of shocked when you say we're down here, when I say we're down here to learn about you know how we can help rescue or how we can advocate for these shelters. and And people are sort of surprised, you know that because for a lot of them, they feel like they're nobody cares. And sometimes when we go into this the real far-flung shelters and rescues, you know they're struggling. They are struggling to keep their head above water and to know that people elsewhere in the country care and value these animals and value the work that they're doing is a powerful message. And so I, I think continuing, you know, we're nudging this boulder, we're nudging it. And I felt like we were starting to gain a little momentum and then the pandemic happened and I feel like that has set things back tremendously because not only did you know we not have spay and neuter and people are more desperate and economic situations are more desperate and rescues are burning out, but the vast majority of people say, oh, the shelters were emptied, yay. You know, They think they feel like we solved all this. And actually that was a wonderful moment but now we're paying for it in tenfold because you know now everybody's already got a dog. They don't want another dog and dogs are getting turned in. And there's some people saying that a lot of people are returning their dogs. And I don't know if that's true. I, I just think that the national average of dogs being returned is 10%, just a good adoption. 10% of those dogs are gonna, on average, be returned for whatever reason. So when you adopt out 10 times as many dogs as you previously did and 10% of them come back, you know, now you're, you're overwhelming a shelter and add to that people who are struggling financially and have to surrender their dog, add to that the huge puppy and kitten season we're having because of all the lack of spay and neuter. And, and what you end up with is crazy overwhelmed shelters. And that's all I'm hearing from so many places is how overwhelmed they are, how this is the worst they've ever seen it. And, and meanwhile, the general population thinks, yay, everyone adopted all the dogs and the shelters are empty. So it's, it's I think, a really tough situation right now.
1: Yeah, and it's a tough situation everywhere. And of course, the way this works, one area depends on another area. If the shelters are packed in the northern cities where sometimes there's a little bit more room, it's, it must be much harder to move dogs up from the rural south and get them adopted. And then there's the ongoing problem. One that that I think makes a lot of people, the animal world, angry is breeders, and the the whole cult of the purebred dog and the idea that purebred dogs are better than normal dogs. <laughs> and you know, it doesn't seem directly like that's connected to these dogs coming up from the rural south, but of course it is because everyone is a home. I mean, each of those each of those dogs goes into a home, and homes are what we need. So, do you think that breeders and the cult of the purebred dog are you are you does it make you as angry as I as I am, or are are you more mellow about it?
2: I don't know. I I I get it. I understand that there is something really remarkable about a purebred dog, and there are people who've had their hearts set on having that dog. You know, the sort of specific type of dog for a long time. So I can respect that, and I feel like if you're if you're going to a responsible breeder, then I then you know I I definitely can't say anything bad about that. You you, you do what you need to do, and everybody's different, but um you know, the bare fact is it's not, we don't have an overpopulation of dogs. It is not an overpopulation problem, what everyone keeps saying. That's not the case. If all the people who are currently looking for a dog were out of all of those, if if just a third of them would, instead of buying a dog, choose to adopt a dog, we would empty our shelters in a day. And that's a, that's a statistic that Kim puts out on her book, The Dog Merchants and it just overwhelms. And when I think about that, that's what makes me keep going. It's like, we just need to keep, you know, rescue dogs are hot right now. We got to keep talking about rescue. We got to keep taking our rescue dogs to the dog park and showing them off. Or like I take mine and do agility. And like, and it's really great when I can say, yeah, she came from a dog pound in Tennessee. You know, we just keep showing people that you can get these beautiful, incredible animals from a dog pound in Tennessee or from wherever, you know. And, And and I think purebreds, have a lot of health issues and that's starting to become more and more apparent because, you know, they are technically inbred. And so they are, there are more and more health issues that come up with purebred dogs. And I, so, so I feel like, you know, we just got to keep going on this, you know, pushing out the importance of rescue and how incredible rescue dogs are and, and let them win over. And it really is a marketing problem more than anything. It's, you know, getting these dogs to the place where they can be adopted. This all brings up for
1: me, I, I was involved more involved in dog issues, uh, as I said, maybe 20 years ago or so, and knew a lot about what was going on in New York City. And there was a lot of resentment at the time of um, one particular animal show. Well, I don't, I don't have to protect anybody. was <laughs> North Shore, um, who brought all their dogs up from the South. And of course, the situation in the city was terrible then. It was, you know, it, it's improved, but it's not at zero. And so there used to be some resentment about shipping dogs hither and yon, even though obviously they all need to be rescued and now it's the also the international issues so i know i know that some of that has stopped because of covid but these dogs in places where the situation is terrible and they are brought here i'm just wondering does that does that attitude still go on i don't have an answer to this i'm not even sure it's a question but have you gotten this attitude from places where a lot of dogs are being brought in of people saying well we have do- we have dogs in our shelter and we're not no kill
2: i mean this isn't a no kill city um why are you bringing dogs here is that is that an issue for people it is yeah i hear that i hear that from people pretty often i'll get a question about that especially the international the international piece, because our rescue does bring in dogs from india And you know not a ton but a dozen or so probably at least a year sometime i think one year they brought in 20 and people are like why would you bring dogs all the way from india but if you've seen the problem in india it's so incredibly awful and yeah and the, and the argument for doing it that I've been given because I asked this very question of, of our of our leaders in our organization, and the argument is this that dogs are you know treated like trash and live in the trash and eat out of the trash in, in parts of India. And when we come in as Americans and want these dogs and they and people learn that Americans want these dogs so much they're going to pay to ship them all the way back to the to America to adopt them. That raises their value, and so for the R rescue, it's a matter of setting an example. It's not sure specific dogs, and it's they have great stories, but it's a matter of setting this example and hoping to have to push some kind of change in that culture. And so, I, I that's fine. I, I'm I get that argument, and it makes sense as far as the U.S. and moving dogs northward. It is tricky. It is very tricky, and. Especially with regards to pit bulls, because if you go to any northeastern shelter, you're going to see pit bulls. That's pretty much, a, or some variation thereof, because that's what sits in the shelters the longest. So bringing more from the south, and yet I can I see where that might frustrate people, but you know, but but to go down there and to talk to the people that are struggling so hard, you know, I can't I can't be angry. We need we need to pull something. There are too many dogs down there, and we need to help them. So that's where I am with it. Yeah, no, there's there's heroic people everywhere and there are vulnerable dogs everywhere and none of them should be
1: blamed. And it's not a blame thing. As you point out all the time, it's a matter of finding the right policy here. One of the things you also talk to, you allude to the problems of statistics at shelters and what different things they might mean when they talk about their live release rate and whether we're really getting accurate information. And can you discuss this and how important it is in understanding what's going on. And maybe I, I saw on your blog the other day, uh, talking about how North Carolina handles this and how you think that's a model.
2: I do. I like how North Carolina handles this. And North Carolina gets labeled as, in fact, it's in Best Friends labels i one of the top five states killing dogs and having traveled extensively in North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Mississippi, and Alabama. I will tell you that North Carolina is not killing more dogs than they are in Mississippi and Alabama and Tennessee. So yeah, it's really hard because everybody wants this magic number. This They want to be called no-kill. And to be no-kill means that you are not killing 90% of your population. So 90% of the animals that come into your shelter get out of your shelter alive somehow, whether reclaimed by owner, moved out by rescue, or adopted. But the hard part is, and so everybody wants that number, and if you get that number, you usually have a better chance at getting support from the public, grant money a lot. So so it kind of drives everything, everybody trying to be able to claim that no-kill status. But it's a really fuzzy number. There's no real, you know, there's no standard for the country. I mean, Best Friends tries to set one, but there's no standard. So you say 90%. Okay. So if you, you have, I, one place I went and they had some kind of horrible disease, I can't remember what it was. It, 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 I'd never heard of it. And kittens. And all these kittens. And they had to euthanize, I want to say, 50 kittens. Might have been more than that. I think it was more than that. Do those kittens count for your no-kill number? Are you now, like, if you, so some places will say no. They are not, no, they don't count to your no-kill number because they're only talking about adoptable dogs. Adoptable, treatable dogs. So And cats. So if the animal is not treatable or adoptable for whatever you call, and that's a really fuzzy term too, what's adoptable, what's not <laughs> adoptable. Some yeah, people, that's a really fussy term. It is, because some people in some shelters will say pit bulls are not adoptable. So then you can kill your pit bulls and it doesn't count towards your no-kill number. I mean, it's really, you can work that number so many ways. So it, it makes that number just me. It just makes me so angry because we get fixated on it. Places get fixated on it. And then they're warehousing dogs because so maybe they do have a bunch of pit bulls and they know they can't get adopted, but they aren't going to kill them, you know, because it'll affect their no kill number. Not that I'm advocating that they kill them. I'm advocating that they do something more to get those dogs out of their shelter. But instead, they just warehouse them and keep them alive for long periods of time, years. And, and in some of these places, even the good shelters, um, you know, it's never a good shelter. No shelter is good for a dog, period. And so for a dog that's having to live in a kennel all of its life in a noisy place where everybody's barking and yelling, imagine as a person how that would feel. Um, and they get out, you know, maybe once or twice a day if they've got a good volunteer program for a walk and some playtime with a human. And a really progressive shelter, they might have playtime with other dogs but not always you know at a short staffed shelter they stay in there all the time and they get their shelter their kennel gets hosed out while they're in it i mean it's it varies you know but that dog's alive so you can still say i'm a no kill sh- we're a no kill shelter so it's really it's a really tricky number and i i don't know the answer i have a few ideas but i don't know the answer but going with the number is just it's un- it's unfair in too many ways it really is this brings back so
1: many memories of trying to get city shelters in New York to, to not talk about adoptable animals. And, and as you've pointed out so clearly, an animal can walk in and be totally adoptable. And a month later, that animal is not a, either he or she is sick or they've, they've just lost their will to live or they've become neurotic. So all sorts of things can change that number. But can you just click back to North Carolina and tell us what they do that, that you think is a step in the right direction?
2: Yeah, so in North Carolina every um every county has to have a shelter or pay towards a shelter, you know, if they if they're too small to have their own then they share costs with another. But they have to report their numbers. And and when they report their numbers, they have to say their intake number of every kind of thing and so funny some places they have like raccoons and opossums <laughs> but anyway, they'll have like their number of dogs that come in and then they will have their outtake like where they went. They have to say what their outcome was whether they were reclaimed by owner, whether they were transferred to a rescue, whether they were adopted from the shelter, or whether they were euthanized. And so they have to show these numbers, and there's no way getting ar- around it. And so they also have to show their budget, how much money they're spending. So you can, anybody can, you can Google uh, statistics, North Carolina shelter statistics, and anybody can look at all their records every year. Um, And you can see how much money they spent per animal that they saved. You can look at those numbers, and anybody's a big, you know, numbers person who wants to crunch numbers. That's they're a great example. And if every state had to do that, you would know what was going on in your shelter. So for me, when I'm traveling down there, I, I go, I look through that list, and I, I look at those numbers, and we look for a shelter that is obviously struggling, and you can see it in their numbers, and I reach out to them through we have this, an organization that I helped co-found called Who Will Let the Dogs Out, which is part of OPH. We traveled in the hopes of raising awareness and telling the stories of what's going on in these shelters and like putting a face on these animals and a face on the heroes that are there doing the best they can with what they've got to save these animals. And I just like the way North Carolina does it because it it's making them responsible for their behavior. And you can clearly see where progress is made and where progress is not being made. And I wish every state did it. Absolutely. Real numbers makes a a huge difference. You know, I could talk about
1: this, as you can probably tell, for a really long time. But one thing I really want to get to is a little advice on fostering, because you make the point so cogently that each of these dogs desperately needs a little time. Fostering can provide just a little time, and sometimes that's all they need. And even though when you look at the big picture, desperately working to give more dogs more time it's just managing an avalanche. It's not stopping the avalanche, but we need to manage it for the moment and for the foreseeable future. We need to give each of these dogs a little more time. And And I'm sure there are some people who are listening who have fostered, but there are probably some people who are listening who have not. And can you just talk a little bit about your advice to people who are considering fostering? What are some of the pluses and
2: minuses? And, and if you're not that experienced, you know how, how can you s- kind of step your toe in? So fostering in any capacity is just the best thing you can do. For me, I think it's the future of our shelter. So if you're nervous about it and you you just think, well, maybe I'm not sure or I'm not sure how my particular, you know, my personal dog is going to or cat is going to handle it. One thing that you can do at a lot of shelters is a doggy day out, or you know, you can take a dog for a hike, or bring it home, or take it out for ice cream, or to for a puppuccino at Starbucks, or whatever. You can a lot of you know a lot of the good progressive shelters will let you take a dog out for a doggy day out, and then also they, a lot of them will let you do a, a a night out, like where you take them for a sleepover. And programs like that, oh, they're just the best, and I wish every shelter had them. But that's one way to kind of test it out if you don't have a shelter that's progressive in your area or you're working directly with a rescue like OPH, I would say ask a lot of questions. And if, if you've never fostered before, choose a rescue that's got a lot of support. You know, ask questions like, what if my dog doesn't get along with this dog? What if I, there's a medical issue I'm not sure how to handle? What if, you know, ask a lot of those questions. And so that, you know, going in, but at the same time, when once you've You bring these animals home and you see the change of who they are from who you get off of transport and who they are in just a few days or a week. It's it's so rewarding. It's incredibly rewarding. And yes, it can be messy and they might pee in your house. In fact, I'm sure they will pee in your house it's just so incredibly rewarding. and I can't say enough about what it does for the dog's mental state and their chances for being adopted. And also their chances for having a good match. Because when a dog's living in a shelter, you're seeing that dog at its absolute worst. I mean, some of them shut down, some of them get totally neurotic, and some of them get angry, you know, just like we would if we were put in that situation. And so you're seeing them at their worst. And And adopting a dog from a shelter is very noble, but at the same time, you're gambling big time because you're seeing this dog at its worst. You hope it's worse, and you're hoping it's going to get better, and they react differently when they get out. So, But adopting a dog from a foster home, you're seeing what a dog is like in a home, in a stable home setting. You get to see what it's like with other dogs, and hopefully cats, possibly maybe children, whether it can walk on a leash, whether it's housebroken, all of those things you're going to learn, whether it's a big barker, you can learn all that by adopting from a foster home. So fostering gives that dog the best chance at getting the right home you know, down the line. So there's a, there's a million reasons to foster and I, I am a big proponent of it and I love talking people into it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you
1: just did a great job of doing that. And that's interesting that you think that that's the future. Like you don't see fostering, I mean, I had sort of been talking about it as if, you know, this is a temporary situation and it is a temper. hopefully this overwhelming situation is temporary and and we just need to foster during that. But you'd like to see the whole thing be fostering
2: uh, and not have, perhaps not have shelters at all? Well, you need a shelter because you need, uh you need some, somebody who knows what they're doing. <laughs> so you need a shelter somewhere <laughs> where the dogs, but I feel like it's a place where the dogs could come and be assessed. So they, they live, they, you know, they serve their stray hold period because you can't adopt a dog until it's it's stayed for a stray hold period, which is anywhere from three days to seven days, depending on the state and county. But after that time, you know, no one's reclaimed it. The dog doesn't have a home. But at that point, you, you need professionals who can assess this dog, its behavioral tendencies, its health status, what it needs, what it doesn't need, whether it's heartworm positive, whether it needs treatment for whatever it needs. But at that point, I think that's when, if in a perfect world, that's when the dogs would be moved to a foster home. And then they would still be on the website, but there would be pictures of them in a home and information about what they're like in a home. And then when somebody is interested in adopting that dog, well then you would bring it back to the shelter and you would and the shelter would have a, a meeting area that maybe was a living room setting or a playground setting or something. to me, that would be to me that's the future. I think that that's the way when we get this fixed because we will get this fixed. That's what the shelters will be. They will be a resource for their community, which is what they're meant to be. So they can offer training classes, they can offer play groups, they can offer doggy daycare, all of that in a shelter. To me, that's what a shelter would do. And then they are just the last line of defense when when a family has no option but to give up a dog, or for whatever reason, you know, that they, they end up in the shelter. We just assess them and get them in a home as soon as possible. So I, I think that would be a great model.
1: Yeah, I I had not thought of that be in the a- that way before. And I love having, I think it's important for everybody doing work with animals, no matter how unbelievably dire the situation is, to be able to envision the way the situation should be. Because at least then you have something to work for. I have so much more to talk. I wanted to talk about the fact that I love the fact that you don't use the word euthanasia, which I hate the use of the word euthanasia to kill uh, perfectly healthy animals because you don't have any, you don't know what to do with them. And I, so I really appreciated that. I wanted to talk about a little bit more about cats, the, the difference between rescuers who get a little bit over in their head and hoarders and how sometimes those terms blend too much together. And But we are running out of time. And the thing I really wanted you to do before we left you is to talk about one of the turnarounds. I mean, one of the ones that you mentioned in the book was K4K, But I'm sure there are others. Can you just tell us about a success story at a small rural shelter to leave people
2: with a little hope and and how it happened? Yeah, I'd be happy to. In fact, I'm going to go visit this shelter next week. I'm so excited. I'm going to see them again. So Cheatham County Animal Shelter, outside of Nashville, to the west, to the west, to the north. I can't remember exactly, but um, (laughs) it's a tiny little rural shelter. I mean, really tiny. They were killing, I think their numbers were really high, like instead of a 90% save, I think it was closer to a 90% kill situation there. And a young, youngish shelter director came in and took over after someone who had been there for a long, long time. And she, when I interviewed her and talked to her, she said, I looked at what we have instead of what we don't have. And what we had have, what they have is this huge piece of property because it's a rural area. And so the county gave them this huge piece of property. I can't, I want to say it's 80 acres. It might be more big piece of property. And so she started working with that. And um, even though they don't have a, a lot of money, they have a tiny budget. And I wish I had the numbers off the top of my head because it's, it's just astonishing what they're doing there in this little tiny shelter. And so she tried to get volunteers in, but again, it's out in the middle of nowhere. Who's going to come? They had to come across the river. I want to say it's Columbia River. They had to come across the, they had to get from the community across the river. Who's going to drive all the way out to this depressing shelter where they kill animals? And that was how it was known. So she First off, started training the staff and turning them around. And then they built trails in their woods. They cleaned up. There was so much garbage and their just stuff littered everywhere. And they brought in dumpsters and they cleared things out. And then they cut in trails and they started painting. They did that little painting, the rocks and leaving messages on the trails to attract people to come out and use these trails. They contacted the local high school um, and asked them to make storyboards to put all along the trail, so no more incentive to get people to come out to hike these trails. And the only cost to come out and hike these beautiful trails was to walk shelter dog. So she started this whole program on walking the shelter dogs and put a lot of smart systems in place to, to make it safe. Like the dogs always came in one way, went out another way. That way they were never running into each other and having some issue when you got a highly stressed population of dogs. And it just got people coming out there and saying, wow, look, the shelter the shelter is a is a great place. So their volunteer program grew and grew and grew. And and when I visited them two, three years ago, they were only killing dogs who had medical issues, who had serious medical issues. And they were able to work with rescues to move some of them out. But they were, you know, plain old adopting a lot of dogs out too. So they did a lot of great, great, great things and turned that shelter around by making it a community place, a community resource. And that's the same story I've heard again and again at other shelters like Anderson County Paws in South Carolina, same thing. They built a dog park. They just did a lot of things to bring the community to the shelter because it does belong to them. Another advocate, uh, Aubrey Cavanaugh, who wrote a book called Not Rocket Science, which is about the no-kill philosophy and plan, um, She's always saying to me, get back to the numbers. Like These shelters belong to their their constituents. They belong to this county, and they're using your tax dollars to kill these dogs. And if you can make that point, this is the money you are paying taxes, and you are trusting that they are taking care of these animals and getting them rehomed, then you have some ownership in that. And you need to go out there and see and know. And when they start finding out that, no, they're not taking care of these animals and they're actually killing these animals— they're going to get really angry because the drugs used to euthanize a dog are extremely expensive. It's cheaper, really, to to take care of these animals well and and get them rehomed. What it takes is good leadership and a good volunteer program and a community invested in in that shelter. And so, you know, by doing that, Cheatham County and Anderson County Paws and there's a lot of them I've seen. Uh, um, it's just remarkable what a turnaround they can have, and it has nothing to do with getting more money. Well, money always helps, but money is definitely not the answer. It's a piece of it.
1: That is a a really inspiring story. Yeah. And money always does help, but, but clearly it's heroes and heroines who, um, are are turning this around in the places that it is. And it's just disheartening to find out about how there are so many places where it's not. Thank you so much. Oh, all right. You mentioned your website, who will let the dogs out? And of course we've been talking about your your book, A Hundred Dogs and Counting. And your I think your first book was called Another Good Dog, which is specifically about fostering.
2: Mm-hmm. It's the story of our first 50 foster dogs.
1: And is there anything else that we should mention before we let people go? Oh, tell us, just mention Amber's Halfway Home. I saw that on your website
2: and I, I'm interested to know about that. Well, that's super exciting. So when we were stuck home during the pandemic, we had just formally created Who Will Let the Dogs Out. So Nancy Slattery, a photographer and friend, uh, she and I founded Who Will Let the Dogs Out. And we were sitting on our hands just frustrated that we couldn't travel and we couldn't do anything. And one of my dreams has always been to make a movie of what's going on down there. And I say it all the time, like if people could just see this, you know. And and I connected with another author who wrote a book um, called Catching Dawn about rescuing a dog in Tennessee, she and I connected and she reached out to me and said, hey, in your book, you said, you just wish you could make a movie about this. If people could see what was happening, they would realize. And so she said, I've got that skill set," And she is a professional and works in the National Hot Rod Association producing their videos and, I mean, their broadcasts. And so she and another really talented filmmaker They came on board and we partnered together and I acted as producer. So I just talked about it a lot and raised money. And I hooked them up with a rescue called Halfway Home Animal Rescue in Tennessee, which is a phenomenal rescue that goes into these dog pounds and rescues dogs where no one else will go. And so they spent a day and they filmed, you know, what it's like to rescue dogs in in Tennessee. And in one day they rescued 18 animals and they told the story of those dogs and what happened. And so it's a 30 minute short doc. And we are currently entering in film festivals, and are really excited that we've been selected already for six. And uh, we're doing a premiere, a, a premiere in Nashville or just outside of Nashville in Franklin, Tennessee. So the film is going to get out there, and hopefully give us some great a chance to talk about what is happening, so people can see it for real and 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 know that it's happening. And that's that's the hope: is this film will get to in front of the right eyes and the right hearts and change some minds and. Change some laws in Tennessee, so that's the hope for that. But that was the one of our big, big project that we worked on during the pandemic. That sounds very exciting, and and you know, as you pointed out, bringing
1: attention is is crucially necessary because people don't know, and you know, people don't want to know, and and so getting them to know is is I I think it, it gets you more than halfway there. So thank you for doing all that you do. And um, thank you for joining us today. This has been really, really interesting. And I wish we could talk forever. (laughs) Me too. I could talk all day about dogs. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our henhouse part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can Follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, OurHenHouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at OurHenHouse.org. Anxieties are rising. Suspicious deaths of 58 cows in North Dakota. It's a sad story, and they're all sad about it in North Dakota, though their reasons might be a little different than mine. So this is this rancher. His name is Brian Amundsen, and, you know, he has his pregnant cows out there on the range, and uh, he came out to find uh, at some point, this is 100 miles northwest of Fargo, that uh, all of these cows were dead. They were pregnant cows. And as he said, we knew it wasn't lightning because we hadn't had any thunderstorms. Well, yeah, that would rule out lightning. And we went through the list of things. It just shows you how, real, how well they really take care of these cows who are out there on their own. Um, they ruled out anthrax, and it was too many deaths to be a natural cause. They had a value of $100,000, but this is what Mr. Amundsen, who's a fourth-generation rancher, said was the real problem. It's extremely saddening, frustrating, emotional, that you would think that someone else would have such a disregard for animal life. I don't understand. Just not designed that way as a rancher. Our job is to take care of animals. All right, I'm not even going to talk about that. I'm just going to let that lie where it is. Oh, my God. All right, this is a story. This is a disturbing story, I find. This is from The Guardian. Criticism of animal farming in the West risks health of world's poorest. And this is actually by two women, Emma Naluima Mugerwa and Laura Ianati, who are uh, you know, according to them, and, and looks valid, concerned their work is to feed the poor of the world. And as this article points out, in the developing world, most people are not factory farming, and livestock is essential to preventing poverty and malnutrition. And they start off by pointing out that the pandemic has made things incredibly worse for the world's poor. In 2020, the number of people in extreme poverty rose by 97 million and the number of malnourished people by between 118 million and 161 million. I don't understand what's going on with this uh, and, and exactly why they think there is a problem that fighting factory farming is, is going to be to the detriment of these people. This is what the article says. The growing chorus of criticism directed against industrial farming in the West is threatening to undermine support for livestock farming everywhere, including in the developing world. There's no evidence of this in here. There's no discussion of what alternatives there might be, because there is an acknowledgement that livestock, regardless of whether it's factory farmed or raised by the poor, is... uh, you know, a major source of of greenhouse gases. and and there's no discussion of what there might be alternatives, because apparently these both of these women have have wed their careers to the idea that animal farming is a crucial way to feed the poor. This is something that comes up all the time, of course, in anti-vegan and anti- uh, animal rights speaking that we don't care about people who are starving, uh, you know, which is nonsense. Of course, we care about people who are starving, or at least most of us do. And there are serious questions about how one would transition people living in dire poverty who might be raising animals for a number of different reasons. What is the best way to deal with that? It's not the problem that we deal with on a normal basis. The problem that we deal with is factory farming and the enormous, enormous quantities of animals consumed by the world's rich. But, you know, they seem to think that we can't fight by the latter without destroying the former. Maybe they're worried that some kind of this is the quote. I mean, this is as clear as this article gets. What we need are investments in targeted government policies that can encourage wider adoption, not wholesale bans or misguided anti meat moonshots. That leave millions of people stranded ever further behind. That's as clear as they get about what they consider the problem here. I don't know. I've just heard this argument so many times that, that vegans don't care about the world uh, the world's poor. That is not the problem. And this article doesn't propose one way to do anything about it. Just complains about the fact that are all of a sudden, you know, there's there's more outcry about the problems of um, of large scale animal farming. Uh, very frustrating. Very frustrating. All right. Also frustrating um, is this. Uh, is as is this everything. In this section of the podcast. Uh, the legally speaking column by Sean Stevens on Meeting Place. What can we learn from airplane crashes? I'm gonna relieve you of having to hear about his whole analysis of like why the National Transportation Safety Board does a good job vis-a-vis airline crashes. because what he really wants the point he really wants to make is that there should be similar policies for what he calls the food industry, but he really means the animal food industry. How amazing it might be, Sean says, for instance, if FDA and USDA, or to follow the model of NTSB, that's the National Transportation Safety Board, and author a one or two page report for every outbreak or recall that meets a predetermined threshold. I would invite the agencies to call me if they would like my perspective on what the thresholds should be. The report would detail the circumstances existing on the processing floor and within the company, which led to the failure causing the outbreak and or recall. There's just a couple of interesting things about this article. First of all, he seems to think that this is a huge problem. And the problem is, is that Corporate leadership is not paying attention to all the food safety issues, so we have to get the government in there. Another interesting fact is is he he apparently expects the taxpayers to pay for this, you know, since the companies don't want to keep their food safe. Uh, He doesn't say anything about uh, maybe, maybe he thinks that, you know, there should be a fee imposed for writing these reports. And the reports sound like a good idea. Sounds like they could save a few lives. But he doesn't mention that, and I bet that would be a pretty hard sell among the people he's writing to. He points out the industry as a whole, including food safety professionals, could read about and also learn from every catastrophic failure, which he apparently seems to think there are a hell of a lot of food safety professionals would also be armed for the first time ever with additional tools to demonstrate to the corporate leadership that the practices being followed in their companies, if mirroring the past failures of others, are the same. And sadly to say, in many cases, they are. Maybe for the first time ever, we could not only learn about, but also learn from the decisions and data points, which can and invariably will lead to failure. So, you know, apparently Sean thinks the the meat industry is basically lethal uh, to a lot of people. And he thinks that the taxpayers should, you know, chip in and why don't we just get rid of the meat industry? Wouldn't that be a better idea? And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties.
0: Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, you can support us by joining the flock at OurHenHouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with.
1: Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review wherever you listen to podcasts or on Apple Podcasts, or you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Henhouse. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Henhouse as your favorite charity. And of course... Tell your friends
0: about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan. That's me. And to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Jocelyn Martinez for her work doing research and for Eric Montgomery of Podcast Haven for his work editing. Thanks to Lori Johnston of Two Trick Pony for her graphic design services.
1: We will be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook page on Tuesday for your bonus content. Thanks
0: so much for tuning in and for changing the world for animals.